Welcome to the Cutting the Gordian Knot podcast. Today is a scriptural exegesis episode where we'll be going through the story of the Tower of Babel. Now, I'll be jumping to a few other places in scripture, and I'm going to be drawing out a number of themes. You seem to enjoy these episodes. Um, I can see in the uh, stats for this podcast that uh, the last one was pretty popular. So I'll keep sprinkling these in, and if you have a suggestion for a certain passage you'd like me to cover, or anything else, just uh, send that suggestion into thegordiannot101 at gmail.com, and I'll see if I can work it into the schedule. And again, thanks for sharing. I see that uh, more people are sharing. Uh, there's a lot more countries that are listening to this, which is really cool. All right, well, without any further ado, let's read through the passage so we kind of have it fresh in our brains, and then we're going to talk about a number of things that we found. I will be reading from Genesis 11, and it kicks it right off with the Tower of Babel. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as they migrated from the east, they came upon a plain in the land of of Shinar, and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone, and bitumen, or tar, for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, otherwise we should be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which mortals had built. And the Lord said, Look, they are one people, and they all have one language. And this is, the, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language there, so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from the face of all the earth, and they left off building their city. Therefore it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. Now, I like this passage for a variety of reasons, one of which is it comes out of nowhere. If you flip the page over, you'll find we have the protracted story of the flood with Noah as our protagonist. And then if you flip the page the other way, we're sliding right on into the story of Abraham. So this is really a hinge point. Um, most Bible commentators, at least in the Catholic tradition, would put this as the moment where we move from more of a, an epic poet poetry style, where things are, are deeply mythological and symbolic, to a more literal history once we hit the call of Abraham. And this one, well, people have opinions whether or not this is meant to be in more mythological or not. Um, but we're going to be dealing with it... Um, in the way that I've proposed in other episodes, that theologically speaking, we draw out of these stories as if they were literal. In the same way that if I tell you the story about the tortoise and the hare, um, which is 2,500 years old or so, we're going to draw out 
the implications of being slow and steady to win the race, as if this was a, a literal event, because it's housing something very true about reality. And I think that that's what this story does. It houses something very true about reality. So we're going to try to tease out what exactly that is. Now, I mentioned a moment ago that this comes right after the flood narrative. So put yourself in their position. There's a memory of the flood, a time when God was so angry at humanity that he wipes them out with water. So what's their response just a few verses later? Well, it makes sense to me. They, they make a tower. A tower is a way that one could escape the waters of the flood. And I think that brings us to our, our first point, that although their sin is not just being great at construction. Their sin is not just building things too tall. Their sin is not working together in too close a cooperation. Their sin is not creating technology, as some commentators have sadly said. That's not true. There's a lot of sins here, um, chiefly idolatry um, and pride. Those are the two. And those are pretty much the two most common as you continue to read through Scripture. And one of the ways that this expresses itself is in trying to avoid the punishment of God. Because, you see, the punishments that God gives, yes, they can be retributive, that's true, but they're always directed to the good. They're corrections. They're penance. It's a recipe for redemption. Now, the recipe for redemption here, the punishment for this people, is to have their languages be confused. And we'll get into that a little bit, um, a little bit later. Actually, no, we're not. We're going to get into it right now. So it says the whole earth had one language in the same words. Now, if you look at the literal translation of the same words, it could also be rendered a few words or only a few words. So what does this society look like? What's one that has a limited way of expressing itself? Well, what's language for? Well, language is a means by which we connect with others, that we voice the praise of our creator, that we learn truths from other people, but they had few words and only one language. So they have limited the way that they can express and explore truth. They've pared it down. Um, that's, that's the first point. The other thing I want to get on the table before we, we, we reread this and continue to emphasize different sections is that there's a big contrast between what this society was like and what the society was before the flood. If you read about that, it was anarchy. And everybody was doing right in his own eyes. Everybody was, was doing all sorts of debauchery. There was confusion. Um, this isn't the same society. This is too far in the other direction. There's this strict uniformity. Um, many commentators talk about how this is an authoritarian structure. Um, one way I understand the, the bricks and the stone 
is that these bricks actually represent people, and the tower represents their order of society, whereby individual people are stuck forcibly, as if with pitch, into a strict hierarchy that reaches up. So this is um, this is very different from the world of the flood. So the punishment is also very different. Um, it also says that they migrated from the east. And this is something else that we should pay attention to. The east is viewed as from whence the light comes, the kingdom of light. That's why the temple, the tabernacle, was all facing east. And the west was viewed as the, the place from whence the darkness comes. Now, if you're Catholic, you may know that Catholic churches are faced towards the west. The reason for this is that we worship God by facing east, the altar. And then we turn to go out into the kingdom of darkness in the mass, which literally means the sending. So we're meant to be launched or sent to go against the kingdom of darkness. But here in this passage, we see that they came from the east. This is a drifting from the place of light towards the place of darkness. So just beginning to read this, that's our first clue, that society here is beginning to go wrong. Now, it mentions the land of, uh, of Shinar, and that one pops out many times in Scripture. This is, I believe, a place in, in of course, Babylon. Thus, this is the Tower of Babylon. And the kingdom of Judea was actually exiled there. This is a place of idolatry. This is a place of confusion, a place of sin. So that's where these people had migrated. These people of few words, of limited ability to express truth. Now, if you're already seeing a few parallels with our own society, well, you'd be right. <laughs> um, this is certainly should be a warning. We have restricted our, our speech. We have uh, censored ourselves. We've become people of few words, people who don't express the truths of our faith. And we've also been moving away from the kingdom of light as a people. All right, well, let's continue a bit. If you noticed, these blocks are set in tar. They're not set with mortar. And this is meant to be a contrast. And to a couple things. One, I would suggest the temple. Because the temple was built with stones and with mortar. And the way mortar works is it, it seeps into the crevices of the stone and it hardens. So it actually makes the entire building one big piece. But the way that they describe is a little bit different. You don't actually have a unity when you place all of these manufactured clay burnt blocks and you stick them together with tar. It's a synthetic, it's a false unity. It's one where if these are representative of uh, people, it, it's one where it's a dictatorship, as I said earlier, one where it's coercion. This isn't a real unity, it's false unity. 
So I think that we should have in mind that there's a, um, a true unity, false unity dynamic going here. Also, I mentioned that this is one side of the spectrum and the anarchy and chaos prior to the flood is the other. What is the via media? What is the correct way for society to be structured, to be ordered? Well, certainly scripture answers that and answers that pretty fully um, with the story of the nation of Israel and, and all the way into the church. That's the biblical answer. But more specifically, I would suggest that it answers it with the story of Noah prior and Abraham after. The answer is family. That yes, there is something uniform about family. And yet, as it describes in all of these generations, some going one way, some going another way, um, each growing and multiplying, and uh, some building cities, some going out to the country, there's also this diversity. So a real unity, and yet a diversity at the same time. That's the scriptural answer, is that the family is the place that, that is the via media between the two. And of course, in both situations we have an attack on just that, the family. And again, there are parallels to our own time. Let's see. Come and let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let's talk about that for a bit. There's a temptation for all of us to build a artificial constructed reality that is apart from the natural world. You see, for temples, for, um, for altars at very least, you're supposed to use uncut stones, um, not manufactured bricks. This represents living in a synthetic or a manufactured world, a city made with these bricks that we ourselves created. And then comes this temptation to make it rise up into the heavens, to elevate ourselves up to the level of God. You may have heard people talk about self-actualization, that we're just supposed to somehow define all reality in light of ourselves. I would suggest that this type of view isn't possible in the real world of uncut stones, it's only available when you gather yourself with like-minded people who speak your same few words and dwell in a city which is of your own making. Because God is infinitely higher above you. And Aquinas' first way would say that he is pure act, pure actuality. That it's his power which actualizes all things, not yours, that everything exists in light of God, not in light of you, that nominalism is false, that God is true, and that our constructed realities, if they don't reflect actual reality, well, eventually they'll be struck down. But let's continue a bit. And let us make a name for ourselves. Recall, not long ago, we have... Uh, the naming of, of Adam. God names mankind. And then Adam names his wife Eve. 
And Adam names all of the animals. And yet, these people want to reject the naming that was done by God and by mankind in relation to God and substitute the creation of their own name. Let me suggest a few things here. We've done a whole episode on the transgender movement, but what is that? But wanting to make a name for ourselves. These are my pronouns now. Oh no, I I call myself a woman, therefore I am a woman. I make my own name. I define myself. I define my world. I created this new reality, constructed reality, made of the greatest technology of its time. And here, I can do the job of God. I can do the job of those in communion with him. But we read on. Otherwise, we shall be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. What does that mean? Why does it do that? This seems to foreshadow what's going to happen to them. As I said earlier, God doesn't execute punishments to be vindictive. No, he's fair. He's just. What his punishments ultimately are about are about drawing people to himself, ridding people of sin, and paving the way for our own flourishing, even if that's challenging and hard. We see a resistance to the eventual penance that these people will be given right here. Otherwise, we shall be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. But wait, isn't that what they were supposed to do? They were supposed to go forth and multiply. That's the original directive. When they left the ark, they left like they came in, two by two. Well, except for the sacrificial animals. I think there were seven of those. Anyways, (laughs) the point is they went into the ark as a group that was meant to be a seed, meant to be generative. They go out of the ark and they're meant to do the same. They're not meant to clump together. They're not meant to halt their own expansion in this way. No, they're supposed to go out, go forth and multiply. Again, this is an opposition to the story of Noah, the story of family. To bring it back to our time, I would suggest that contraception is a similar idea that unless we make our own artificial reality, unless we do something to halt our own filling the earth, unless we do something to halt the directive of God to be together in a real unity, a real family unity, well, then we're stuck as we see here. Another thing um, I'd like to point out is that this tower is a central pole of their city. Now, this is a plane that they came to. We saw that in the couple verses uh, uh, prior. So they're all on this flat plane. And if they build this giant tower, that means that everybody who's tending their flocks and herds can look and see where the city is. It's reaching up to the heavens. It becomes the center of where they go, the means by which they navigate. Well, that's not what's intended by Scripture. That's not the Christian worldview. Instead, that central point from which we navigate, 
It's not something constructed by us. That's what this is trying to tell you. Your central point of navigation, the place in which you find unity, well, ultimately, it's Jesus Christ. And uh, hundreds of years after this, it would be the temple, the place that everybody streams to. It would be Jerusalem, the true pole of the earth. It would be the holy city, not the city of Babel. It would be a place where many tribes, different tribes, are all united in one common worship. Not of a false god, but of a true god. Let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we shall be scattered abroad across the whole face of the earth. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which mortals had built. So what's God's first act in fixing this disordered society? Well, it's coming down. It's a descent. Now, of course, I think this foreshadows a number of things. One, of course, is Christ's incarnation, his descent into humanity to create a properly ordered, true place of worship. But also, and maybe more importantly, this presages Pentecost, where God comes down and then he undoes Babel. Because when the Holy Spirit descends, he allows everybody to speak in everybody's languages so that everybody speaks with not a few words, but become a people of many words, of many ways to dispense the truth of the one God. And the Lord said, look, they are one people and they have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Does this mean that God's trying to halt our flourishing? Does this mean that if God had let them alone, they could have done all sorts of wonderful things? Well, no, I think that's clearly not the concept. Instead, this is, this is a false city. It's an empty promise. Let's go back a little bit to the fact that this is built on a plane. And I get some strong communist vibes from this whole arrangement. First, we say we're drifting towards a place of darkness. Next, we say we're going to settle in a plane, a place that's even, a place that's flat, a place that's equal. And then after that, we see that there's a, a hierarchy, a strict hierarchy, where people are stuck in place. So what are they going to do with this one language? What's going to now be possible for them? Well, I would say what's possible is future misery. I'd say what's possible is a further caving in on oneself, more idolatry, more of the same, more false humanity, more disconnection from reality. That is what becomes possible in this city. And that is what God comes down to disturb. So come, let us go down and confuse their language there. Let us go down. Now, even uh, rabbinic commentators note that this is one of the places where God's name is plural. Let us go down. So... 
not all places where God's name is plural or there's an us um, denotes the, the Trinity. I think I've said in, in another episode how where God says, let us make man, I actually think that the us it means the earth and God. Not that the earth is sentient or Gaia or something like that, but instead we see right after the passage that the earth um, gives the dust and God gives the spirit. So it's talking about this cooperation of material and spiritual. Um, it's speaking to the distinct nature of mankind and his priestly role as a priest of the universe, drawing from the material and then being inspired with this very spirit breathed from God. But this one, this one, I think this one is Trinitarian because the Trinity is the family of God, one that we're ultimately called into. So it says, let us go down and confuse their language. God is undoing this false unity with the true unity of the Trinitarian God. Yes, it's diverse, but it's not diverse like the people of the flood. Yes, it's unified, but it's not unified in some type of constrictive way. No, it's a family. There are three persons, one substance. So and the entering of the Trinitarian God is the undoing of both disordered societies, and the entrance of the family that we will one day be part of through adoption, through Christ. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there, the Lord scattered them abroad over all the face of the earth. Now, some people have pointed out that this is a bit of a polemic against the Babylonian tale of the construction of their great temple. Um, I believe that on one of the largest ziggurats that have ever been found, and maybe more than one, though, check up on this if you like, that it actually contains the, the inscription, um, that says, let us make a name for ourselves. So this seems to be aimed at the Babylonian idea of what their type of worship was. And they believe that they'd be calling the gods down, that they would be coming among them, that this wasn't necessarily a way for them to go and become God, though we, we do see some of that here, particularly in the way that it's presented here in Genesis also a way for God to come down to them. And I like that God shows that when the true God comes to this place, he undoes this. He scatters them. He calls them back to their original mission to go forth, fill the earth. That he does the opposite of what the Babylonians would think that a God would do. Another thing, um, let's see if I can find it here. Let's uh, read a, a bit from Genesis uh, 28. I hope it's Genesis 28. Um, that is the story of uh, the patriarch Jacob. And Jacob has, has a vision, which I think is much more important than most people give it credit for. It's the, the great ladder that goes up and down from heaven. All right, I'm going to be reading from, uh, let's go for verse 10, uh, right towards the end of the chapter. And I'm going to butcher 
every single difficult to pronounce uh, <laughs> city, I'm sure. All right, starting with this one. Jacob left Beer Beersheba, we'll call it Beersheba, and went towards Haran. He came to a certain place and stayed there for a night because the sun had set. All right, put a pin in that. Remember our motif of east and west, kingdom of light, kingdom of darkness. All right. Taking one of the stones of that place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place. All right, you see how in Babel they were standing up. They were they were going to this high constructed place. All right, so here's Jacob. He's laying down with his head on an uncut stone. And he dreamed that there was a ladder set up on the earth and the top of it reaching to heaven. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And the Lord stood beside him and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. And your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, in all the families, families of the earth shall be blessed in you and in your offspring. Know that I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. Let's stop there. We'll keep you wherever you go. In Babel, there's the fear of the flood, the fear of the unknown. We have to construct our own synthetic center of our life. But here, when we see the real place where the angels ascend and descend, the real ladder that goes up into heaven, well, here we're told that God will go with us wherever we go. All right. And will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob woke from this sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. So Jacob rose early in the morning and he took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called that place Bethel. But the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me, and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I will come again to my father's house in peace. Then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And all that you give me, I will surely give you one-tenth. There's a lot to say there, but let's just talk about the posture of Jacob. It's not one of pride. It's not one where he goes up to God. It turns out that God just came to him. He says, God is in this place, and I did not know it. He was sleeping. He was not active. And yet God comes to him because of his act of obedience, because of his membership in this holy family. That's why God comes to him. And this stone that becomes an altar, this stone which is described as a house of God, a simple thing, a stone is a house of God. This uncut stone that he sets up and anoints. He rested his head on it. I think that's a little important. You know, 
one of my favorite saints, St. Thomas Aquinas, when he couldn't understand something, which is amazing because he seemingly understood everything, he would go to the altar and he would put his head on the altar and he'd call to God and say, God, help me understand these things. What was he doing? He wanted to see, he's called the angelic doctor. He wanted to see these angels ascending and descending. He wanted to peek into heaven like Jacob. So he puts his head on the altar, just like Jacob puts his head on the stone that becomes an altar. We ought to do the same. What we ought to do is not look for truth in a created reality. Not think that we can arrive at God just by by our own work of our hands. No, that's ridiculous. It's through membership in a family. That's through baptism, prefigured by the flood, I might add. And that it's by putting our, our whole self, and particularly if we want to know truth, we need to place our minds at the feet of God, place our minds as a living sacrifice. We need to not think that we define our own reality, that we are self-actualizing or something, but instead first know the God who created all things. Meditate on that. Put our mind there. Well, it's a bit of a short episode, I suppose, compared to the other ones. Um, yep, just email me if you have any suggestions or if you have any questions. I have not done the mailbag recently. Um, I might have one or two that I need to do. Um, but we're low on questions, tragically low on questions. As you know, I have no filter and I will answer anything biblical. It can be philosophical. It can be entirely related to all of those things. Um, so send them in at thegordiannot101 at gmail.com. And thanks for listening. <laughs>